Hi, this is Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 26 of the Clarinet Podcast. Today's guest is Francois Uhl. This episode is brought to you by Dedaria Woodwinds. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, Dedario is redefining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with technology built from the ground up. By using the world's most innovative techniques to deliver consistently what was once made variable by hand, Dedario ensures excellence right out of the box as standard, not a surprise. So you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from Dedario Woodwinds, visit dedario.com woodwinds. Clarinetist Francois Uhl has established himself as one of today's most inventive musicians in all of the diverse musical spheres he embraces. Inspired by collaborations with the world's top musical innovators, Francois has developed a unique improvisational language, virtuosic and rich with sonic embellishment and technical extensions. A sought-after soloist and chamber musician, he has actively expanded the clarinet's repertoire by commissioning some of today's leading Canadian and international composers and premiering over 100 new works. A founding member of critically acclaimed ensembles such as Sea and Sky, The Turning Point Ensemble, and Standing Wave, Francois has also collaborated with leading ensembles in Canada, including ECM+, Bozzini Quartet, Fibonacci Trio, among others. He has been listed on numerous occasions in Downbeat Magazine's readers' and critics' polls as a talent deserving wider recognition and a rising star. We discuss in this episode mostly Francois' CD releases. He has three that we sort of focus on a little bit and sort of his concept of finding his own musical voice and uh, how he became to be so diverse and so successful at that diversity, which is in itself a challenge. The giveaway for today's episode is several signed copies of Francois' CDs. If you'd like to be eligible to win items mentioned on the podcast, be sure to go to www.clarineat.com giveaways. Before we get started today with the, with the episode, I'd like to play an excerpt from Francois' CD called Ariel's. Now, this CD, he actually uh, used the clarinet and sort of combined it with the reverb sounds from the piano to a really, really interesting effect, which I think that you're just going to love. Hi, Francois, and welcome to the Clarinet Podcast. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Oh, it's a pleasure, Sean. So you're an extremely versatile player who has played virtually every style of music between ranging from avant-garde to classical, jazz, even pop music. Before we get started with all the amazing things that you've done, how does one work towards becoming so versatile as a player? <laughs> I think you have to start by having a nervous breakdown after graduating <laughs> from university. <laughs> And wondering what the hell you're going to do with your life, you know. Uh, actually, uh, interestingly enough, when I when I graduated, I um, I ended up going to the Banff Center uh, for the arts for um, uh, the winter cycle, they used to call it, which is an extended uh, five six month residency 
uh, that would start in late September and go until the spring. And uh, this was like, we're talking 1987. That was after I graduated from Yale University. Um, so I had a master's degree in my pocket. And I just wanted to buy some time to prepare for auditions, basically, which was what everybody did. For time. orchestral auditions? Uh, for orchestral auditions, yeah. Um, and uh, so I, I met a bunch of players from the Calgary Phil when I was in Banff, and, um, and I was hired to, to play utility clarinet for uh, a couple of concerts. And... Um, and that worked out pretty good, but the, 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 you know, musically speaking, it was fun. It was like, uh, you know, we did American in Paris and that's the blues. And I can't remember who the soloist was, but, um, but after, after the music was fine, but after the experience, I, I sort of, um, it got, it raised a lot of, uh, sort of red flags as to, am I the right fit, the right personality to, to, aim at getting a career in orchestral playing and uh and i looked at the options and i talked to a lot of people um you know teachers clarinetist colleagues whatever and i quickly realized that you know if i didn't want to do orchestral playing it wouldn't mean that i was a failure or anything that there were so many other avenues possible um one person that I met that really um, challenged uh, that known sort of al almost a North American notion that to be a good clarinet player, you, you got to get an orchestra job. Um, it was uh, Alan Hacker, a uh, British clarinet player, uh, who actually came to Banff to uh, give me some coaching and stuff like that because they used to have guest lecturers, guest artists coming into mm -hmm. the, the Banff Center program. Um, and so I got to work with him for, for a couple of weeks and after a couple of weeks, you know, we talked about everything from improvisation to chamber music to playing uh, concertos, uh, you name it. Uh, we, we touched the, the subject, you know. And he said something to me that really um, got me thinking very differently about my career or my plans for a career. Um, and he said, you know, your playing is very poetic and it doesn't sound, it, you don't sound like... Uh, you know, the 99% of the clarinet players who are going to get work in orchestras, you, you've got something else to say. Mm -hmm. um, so it was not about technique. It was not about, um, you know, uh, artistic affinities or anything like that. It was just about the sound and about this personal voice that we all aim at developing, especially um, uh, outside of the classical arena. Um, when you talk to jazz musicians, they always say you got to develop your own voice, you know, your individuality. And of course, when you want to get a notice to a job, that's, you don't think about about your personal voice and your identity, your individual identity. You just want to fit into the section and serve the section the best you can. And the section is always looking for a certain profile and kind of player. And if you don't fit that profile 100%, you're not going to win an audition, and you're not going to do well. Um, so I was in that 1% <laughs> <laughs> of, of players that were like, eh, okay, my, my teachers always complained about my tone. I would play a phrase, and I would change my tone throughout the phrase. And I remember Keith Wilson at Yale University, uh, Yale School of Music, um, saying, why do you do that, Frankie? He used to call me Frankie. Um, 
and I would say, well, that's how I feel it. And it was like, well, that's not good enough. That's not going to work. You know, like you got to play it this way or it's not going to work. And I was like, the hell with that. I'm going to play it the way I want. Yeah. Uh, so I was a bad student, <laughs> but I was in, I was parked in the right place because, you know, Keith Wilson was the, he was Richard Stolzman's clarinet teacher, principal clarinet teacher for, for a while after he studied with Leary. And, um, and after a little while of discussing and arguing and uh, butting heads, uh, he sort of realized that I, um, that my, my areas of interest in the music was uh, a little bit more eclectic than, than what he was accustomed to. And he said, you know, like, maybe you should uh, consider working more on jazz, on improvisation, he even set up a, a, a way for me to meet with Benny Goodman to, to fire me up to, to look at that side, that stuff. And um, so you can Sorry, see... Sorry, did you already, say you met Benny Goodman? Yeah, yeah. When we were at Yale, uh, Benny Goodman came to do a fundraiser for Yale School of Music with his orchestra, played at Woolsey Hall, and uh, I was in charge of moving his stool around <laughs> for him and making sure he got a scotch and that he wasn't disturbed during the break in the concert. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, he was an old guy. He was uh, he was pretty grumpy. I, I don't think he was, uh, you know, uh, uh, feeling too good. Uh, but he did this thing. He's a consummate professional. But um, you know, we got to chat, and um, um, and it was it was just uh, an amazing experience just to meet the guy and uh, and you know see how he carried himself uh, on stage and behind the stage. And um, you know, when he talked to the students, he was very generous at the time, considering that he, you know, I think he died like a few months after that. And uh, but anyway, you know, like meeting him, working with Keith, uh, you know, and Richard Stolzman came to Yale as well to give a master class. David Schifrin met a lot of players, and and very often that that was the comment that they had to make about my playing. It was like, well, you know, you're uh, you're not American school, you're not French school, you're 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 sort of filling fitting in between the in the cracks, so to speak. And I was interested always in, in repertoire that was sort of off the beaten path. Um, you know, um, at the time, I was maybe a little bit more of a renegade than I am now. And that might sound a bit ironic, but, but it's, it's true. I, because now I, in, in when I'm, I'm doing so much classical music right now, and a lot of repertoire that I thought I would never get to play again, like Mozart Quintet and... I played the Weber Concertino uh, uh, just last January. Uh, that's a piece that I never thought I would ever touch again after I graduated from school, you know. Uh, yeah. But here I am playing this music and then collaborating with, uh, you know, pretty hardcore improvisers and uh, working with uh, Dan Mangan's uh, collaborators with Gord Gardina and Kenton Vaughan, you know, it's all over the map. But anyway, it was there was some early signs to answer a question. I'm giving you the long story here. That's okay. Um, uh, it was definitely um, uh, a predisposition or or a way that I heard things. You know, um, when I started on the clarinet, um, I started really young. I was like about seven years old when I picked up my first clarinet, and um, and my, I remember my, my you know making it this first sound and my parents were saying, Oh, you know, like we've got all these LPs of, of great clarinet players. Uh, you should check those out. So I started listening to these things and 
my dad would always play music on uh, on on Sunday mornings after coming back from church and whatnot. And uh, but his collection was like <laughs> he had like four LPs, and it was like two LPs by Benny Goodman, an Artie Shaw CD, and a Woody Her- Herman CD <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, LP. No no CDs at the time. Yeah, uh, this was the late '60s, right? Um, so that my the, the first clarinet sounds that I had in my ear was was you know Benny Goodman and Artie Shaw and Woody Herman, and and then of course with my when I started lessons and everything, my teacher turned me on to, you know, Marcellus with Cleveland Orchestra and things like that. So, but I, I already had a quite uh, eclectic uh, diet of clarinet sounds in my head from hmm. the get go. And I think that probably subconsciously marked me because I was always experimenting with mouthpieces, with reeds, with different clarinets. Uh, I, 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 I even played a, clar- a metal clarinet for a little while. I, I, you know, I had um, some really beat up summer nine, some centric tones. I, I switched to buffet and I, I tried everything, you know. So I was never really an R13 guy from the get go. And this is the type of sound you play. And this is the kind of mouthpiece you play. I've always been looking for different sounds, different ways of playing the instrument. So, um, so when I was talking with Ed Jaffe a while ago, he, he mentioned that uh, modern musicians kind of need to be musical chameleons to be successful. Do you, do you feel that way too? Or do you feel this is just sort of where you fit in? Well, despite the fact that I tried to do a lot of different things, the focus is still the instrument. And, and it's, I, I try to find a way of approaching the instrument where I'm comfortable, where I feel like it's a good fit. Um, you know, and I'll park that attitude into the music. If I feel that the music uh, is worth exploring, worth playing, I get a good feeling out of it. I, you know, I just go with my instinct. Um, how, how do you tell if a piece is really worth playing? I mean, I talked to Harry Sparni the other day, and he said from the moment he opens the score, he, he just knows if he'll touch a piece again. Uh, yeah, usually, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, first impression is very important. Uh, but again, you know, I've revisited repertoire that I never thought I'd do again, or pieces that I, I looked at the score and I thought, ah, I'd never play this. Um, you know, Boulez's Domain, for example, you know, I looked at that piece of music, glanced through it very quickly when I was a student in university and I thought, ah, now it's not my thing. And I went back to look at it and then looked at his newer material, the Yellow de l'Ombre Double, and I ended up recording and performing this material. So mm-hmm. you never know. Um, what what guides me the most is the, the, the feeling that I get and the level of satisfaction that I get out of playing something. And if, if it's there, uh, if I draw pleasure out of it, of course I, I will put my whole into it and, and develop it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think your question had a bit more to do with um, career decisions more than repertoire. Oh, yeah, we just sort of sidetracked. Sorry. <laughs> uh, that's okay. It was, you're bringing back to that because it's a good question. Um, uh, I mean, what happened was that when I graduated, of course, and I, I, I had to, uh, uh, after I went to Banff, I got a grant to go and do some research on uh, historical instruments in, in Europe. And it was my first time in Europe. Um, and um, I had a plan to go to all the different instrument collections and, and meet players and uh, instrument makers, and I went to 
buffet and I went to uh, summer with a list of questions and I was a bit of an idealistic student, you know, in a way that I thought, oh, I'm going to write the book on, on the history of clarinet and blah, blah, blah. Then I realized <laughs> that Phil T, Philip T. Young had already done all the research and uh, a number of people have already written the stories and everything. So, but what I learned from it was that um, I, I met, you know, the uh, sort of uh, the, um, the the clarinet, um, uh, the the front line of the clarinet world, you know, uh, so the, all the well-known brand names, the well-known players. Um, but what I didn't know is that there was this whole other other undercurrent of players that were sort of like almost counterculture to this sort of clarinet.org scene, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, Harry Sparney was one of them, actually. That's interesting that you've spoken to him because he's a guy who went and took a totally different path. And oh, really, yeah, he and, invented the path. Well, pretty much, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, and paved the way for so many other players. But, um, but I met people like that most people on the uh, on the classical side will have never heard of like people like Abbars, Michael Moore, uh, Luis Clavis, uh, um, who's probably the more known of the three that I just mentioned, uh, Tony Cole, uh, who's well known as a sax player. He's the guy who recorded the, the saxophone solo for the Pink Panther, for example. <laughs> uh, well, Tony Cole is a good friend of, uh, of um, Alan Hacker. And they even recorded uh, and commissioned uh, pieces together, uh, clarinet duos, and he was a fantastic clarinet player. And in London, when you talk about Tony Cole, he's known as a clarinet player, as a jazz clarinet player. Mm -hmm. So th these guys were, there were all, all those names I mentioned, they're all improvisers. Um, and, they, and they compose as well. Um, and they play their own music. They don't really play other people's music, except when they're collaborating in various groups and I I didn't know that that was possible at the time you know I just thought wow what if I went back home uh, and uh, started writing my own music and started learning how to improvise properly and interact with people on the jazz scene but but also on the free improv scene you know it's interesting to hear you say that because Evan Zaporin kind of said the same thing he said that uh, he was having trouble finding people to play his music but he could get people to have him play his music oh, yeah. and uh, it turned out yeah. better for him too. And it just really spiraled from there into something great. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, you know, Evan has got his own, also his own parkour, so to speak. Um, and I, I, when I came here, when I moved to Vancouver it was more, uh, it, was, it was like literally a new year's Eve, 1990. Um, and the idea was to get a fresh start to just, okay, I put the school years behind, put the artistic residencies behind and just start officially, you know, on my own path. And um, I quick, I stumbled upon a really rich and fertile uh, improvised music scene in Vancouver. And hmm. uh, it's sort of like a, a, a new music scene that was very, uh, that, that was where the aesthetics were, considerations were very different than where I came from, you know, in Montreal and living in New York and Connecticut. Um, so I, I uh, really, that was my diet when I was here. I hardly ever went to classical concerts. Uh, I just checked out 
the improv the music scene, the jazz scene, and uh, and started collaborating with some of these people. Uh, but also um, uh, met a number of people who were interested in contemporary music. There was a few festivals uh, uh, being put together the, with the Vancouver uh, um, uh, New Music Society, uh, VNNS at the time. Now it's called it's just called Vancouver New Music. Uh, and uh, Pro Musica Society, which was, uh, uh, as opposed to the Montreal Pro Musica, is a real new music uh, society here um, that foster um, the development of new composers, basically, you know, mm -hmm. stud students and young emerging composers. So I got involved in that, and uh, out of Pro Musica, there was a group that was formed called Standing Wave. Uh, that I was asked to join, and it was uh, it was me on clarinet, uh, Peggy Lee on cello, Laurie Lister on percussion, and um, uh, Le Tuan uh, on um, uh, on piano. So it was a, sort of like a, a, a hybrid group of instruments. It was not piano ensemble, it was not quartet for the end of time ensemble. It was a, a hybrid that was done on purpose so that we could develop our own repertoire. And uh, I was a member of Standing Way for like 11 years and played over a thousand compositions with that group. Um, and long enough to develop uh, a really strong aversion to, <laughs> uh, to, to playing uh, poorly written or music by composers who were maybe not ready uh, for um, uh, the rigors of that world, you know. Yeah. Um, but also learned uh, how to teach and learn how to learn, you know, through that process, you know, and uh, and learning how to recognize uh, talent also and to recognize uh, people who have a good combination of talent and skills to be able to to put forth their their vision, their musical vision. So after 11 years of doing that, I would say that I've I've, I've given a good you know, kick at the bucket, <laughs> so to speak, in terms of <laughs> new music. But it's made me a sort of a specialist in that scene. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but what was interesting was that the more we developed as a group and the more we collaborated with composers, we realized that there there was a need for the composers to interact more with the uh, with the performers uh, to learn about you know instrument how to write for the instrument, you know, the instrumental practice, new practices like extended techniques, uh, but also to learn about the attitude of the performer towards the written score and how, how to make it effective, you know. Uh, the, the score is just a, a medium between, you know, it's, it's a means of communicating ideas uh, between, you know, a composer who jolts down his ideas and a performer who has to interpret these ideas. So there's a bit of a of a of a divide there that um, it, it, it's a buffer zone that gives license to the performers and the composers to do whatever the hell they want to do. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 it's confrontational from that point on. You know, it's like uh, well, I want you know the composers will say, "I want you to do it this way. This is the sound that I want." And there was no real dialogue going on for a long time between composers and performers for the performers to say to a composer, well, I can do it this way, but there is a better way. And it will sound better in this context. Let me try it. And then we would try some things and experiment with composers and, and it became a very healthy thing. So if there was one great positive thing that came out of my, all those years of playing new music, um, uh, you know, not just here, but 
any, anywhere. You know, I've collaborated with Lanzan, I collaborated with uh, SAM in Montreal, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, is that my rapport with the composers is it's almost the same now as my rapport with an improviser. Oh wow! Which which is I can walk up to a composer and say, hey, I like your ideas. I like the sound you're getting. And how did you do this? How did you come up with this idea? You know, like I'll ask a bunch of questions and then they'll turn, they'll turn around and go, um, how do you do this? How do you, do, how can I write this better for the clarinet? And like I said, it's a healthy dialogue that promotes creativity as opposed to supporting, you know, things or supporting a sort of status quo of, of, um, uh, of a very divided, um, practice of being a composer and being a performer. Absolutely. So, so that's a lot of great stuff about your upbringing and your time in Vancouver and working with composers, the dialogue that starts, that's all uh, that, but all, that all often culminates into a recording of which you've done many. Um, can we briefly touch on your, your, uh, three records, Rue, Paul, Fort Paris, and then Double Entendre mm -hmm. and also Ariel's just real quick, each one, they're each kind of interesting yeah, in their own sure. way. Sure. Oh, I mean, they're completely different. Yeah. Uh, uh, Rue Paul Fort, uh, that's sort of, um, well, uh, here, I'll try to make a, a short story from a long story. Um, <laughs> I've, I, I believe in long-term collaborations, um, you know, uh, and on that CD, it's a, it's a trio CD with um, French pianist uh, Benoit Delbecq and, uh, and French bassist uh, Joël Léon, so a couple of French musicians that I've had the good fortune fortune of meeting in Vancouver uh, in, in the context of the uh, Vancouver uh, International Jazz Festival. Mm -hmm. And what's, uh, I met Benoit in 94. Um, I met Joel in 93 or 92. And um, when I first met Joel, I mean, I've never heard, um, first of all, um, uh, uh, an improviser like her. She plays double bass, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and then when I figured out about her story and 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 her upbringing and her lifelong uh, development of, the, of bass techniques and bass repertoire, um, I mean, she she's a legend in in the improvised music world and in the new music world. Uh, but if you talk to most classical players uh, in orchestras, they don't know who Joelle Leal is. Um, she was the first woman to graduate. Uh, from the Paris Conservatory in double bass. And her first gig when she graduated was to play with Ensemble Intercontemporain with Pierre Boulet. Wow. Um, so she's not a flake. <laughs> she's not faking it. She's the real deal. Um, and she's got uh, French technique, French bowing technique, and plays a bohemian bass. Uh, so it's a smaller bass than the orchestral setup uh, that most people use. And... Um, and she's just a, if, you know, the, the word virtuoso is used very gratuitously these days, but if, if you could apply it to one person, she would be the one. And I've played with great players. I, I've, I've met and worked with Edgar Meyer, with the Gary, Gary Carr and people like that. And Joelle is, is heads and shoulders above and beyond those people, technically and musically, I can tell you that. Mm -hmm. uh, sincerely, and it's not because she's my friend. <laughs> yeah. She really is a phenomenon, um, and she's a very real militant uh, 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 advocate of new music and improvisation. 
And what's interesting with Joao, and this is the short story, by the way, I could give you the long version. (laughs) (laughs) Even the short version has to be a bit long because it's so fascinating. Um, After um, she graduated and worked professionally in Paris for a few years, uh, she got a grant to uh, go to um, SUNY Buffalo uh, to work with uh, John Cage. Oh, wow. um, she was at a festival there, and she she went and studied with John Cage, and she met Morton Salmon and uh, a lot of... At the time, Buffalo was a rural... Uh, uh, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Morton Subotnik was there even for a while, and it was just Morton Salmon. I'm not sure. But she met those people, and she went to New York and met a lot of uh, uh, really great young musicians on the scene at the time. William Parker, who's probably one of the greatest free jazz-based players on the planet right now, and developed relationships with all these people, with George Lewis in Chicago. Um, And she went back home uh, with all that knowledge and experience. And she told me, it's like when she met John Cage, she became very, very, very close friends. And she told me, like, after I met John and heard his music and talked to him, I realized that my, 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 my true uh, goal in life was to just advance the cause of improvisation, not composition, improvisation. And, you know, we associate John Cage more on the compositional side of things, right? Uh, from, from our perspective in classical music. But uh, she, what she got out of, out of working with John was that improvisation was the way to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she spent her whole career just basically improvising and meeting people and, and recording uh, purely improvised music. And she's done a lot of compositions and she composes a lot too now, but, but her main thing was improvisation. Well, some people so, I think feel that improv and composition are kind of tied together. Well, they are. They, they are. I mean, you know, we're, it, semantics are, are a bit weird when, when you, but the, the further down you dig, the more you realize that they are the same. But uh, from a traditional yeah. uh, viewpoint, uh, they're considered very different, right? Um, anyway, so my meeting with Joel really uh, uh, influenced me a great deal. I realized that I had to really put a lot of energy into developing my own voice as an improviser and developing my technique so that I could really play in the moment and everything. Um, anyway, and Joel uh, knew of this young um, pianist uh, Benoit Dalbec, who was doing some interesting things with Perpetual Piano. And uh, Benoit had a, an opportunity to go to the Banff Center in a jazz program in the summer of uh, 1984. And, um, uh, and that was a real uh, sort of um, pivotal moment for him. He met uh, uh, a lot of great young musicians in the faculty then, uh, Dave Holland and uh, 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 oh, John Abercrombie and a number of other people. Um, but he went back to France and really started working on his own compositions and, and his own way of approaching the piano. And uh, Joël heard him play in a concert and he told her that he had been invited to the jazz festival. Um, this is like at around 93, 94. And she told him, it's like, well, when you go to Vancouver, you have to meet and play with François. I think you guys will really hit it off. I, you know, nice guy, blah, blah, blah. So he came to Vancouver and we met and we talked and, and, and we, I told him, it's like, well, we really have to 
do something together. Um, then the subsequent year, I was in in um, in Paris uh, doing a bunch of concerts and touring with Joao. And um, I called Benoit up and we said, um, I said we, we should get together and do some playing. He says yes, but instead of coming to my place, let's go to the studio and we're going to record. Oh wow! So, you know, without really thinking much about it, we just went to the studio, brought a bunch of tunes that we were working on, recorded uh, what turned out to be our first CD, Nantali. Um, and then we went on to record uh, about four or five other CDs since uh, as a duo. And we did also some recordings. Uh, we, we talked about doing recordings with other people to open it up and turn it into a trio eventually. Uh, so we recorded with a great uh, British saxophone player, Evan Parker, one year in Montreal. And, uh, and then we, I proposed to him, it's like, well, I know Joel, I've known Joel for like 20 plus years. I've known you for 20 plus years. Why don't we do a, a project together? And uh, I called Joelle, I pitched the idea to her and she loved it because ironically enough, we'd been working together as duos uh, with Joelle and Benoit uh, with me for uh, 20 plus years now. It's been like, uh, I'm going to do the math, since 1994, I started playing with Joelle at 93, 94 and it's 2016, mm -hmm. uh, so 20 plus years for sure. Um, but they had never played together even though they both lived in Paris within less than a kilometers from each other. So I said, well, this, this is great that I bring in my two longest uh, musical collaborators together to do a trio with. And we did this performance in Paris, which was recorded live and it became the CD. So that's the story. <laughs> so wait, that, that's um, just for listeners. We're, st we're talking about um, the first record still, right? Yes. Yeah. The, the Ripoll Fall CD on Leo Records. Um, Interesting. So, so that was actually recorded live in Paris. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, and that came out on Leo Records last year uh, in the fall. And, um, and it's, uh, it's a beautiful document because it's improvised. Uh, but if you listen to some of the tracks, uh, you can certainly hear some themes and some, you know, it's very composed in a lot of ways. Um, uh, some of it is more new music. Some of it is it sounds more like spectral music. Some of it sounds more like folk melodies, and and some of it is almost like jazz, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but it's its own music. It touches upon a lot of different um, aesthetic uh, threads, um, but it's it's its own trio music, basically. Uh, it's 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 the sounds of our collective souls put together not to sound too flaky but yeah um uh and it's all my experience of playing the clarinet and playing with benoit's prepared piano and my experience of working with joelle who also sings when she plays the bass so it's a, it's a very deep um moving document for me because it brings it it brings in um, this whole 20 plus years of uh musical uh relationship uh together in one in one place so with the next record, Double Entendre, um, it sounds, I really love how the sounds in there, the layered clarinet is working. And I like how you sort of played with the stereo field of the headphones. Do you consider mm -hmm. live performance, um, sorry, do you consider uh, recording an album to sort of transcend live performance that you can use the studio in that way? Or is it just something different? Uh, well, by asking that question, um, it, it, 
you know, you, you, you can't help but to think about Glenn Gould, you know, and his report to the audience and his report to the recording medium. And, uh, and I've put a lot of thought into that, of course. I mean, there, there's some influential statements from, from one of our greatest uh, musical exports. Um, but I don't think that you can ever recreate um, a live uh, situation and, you know, uh, on a, in, in the recording medium. Uh, you can sort of imitate it and come pretty darn close to it, you know, if you have a good technician and everything. Uh, but I, I don't really think about that much when I'm working um, uh, in the studio. Um, however, um, for the context of Dublantown, um, because Pierre Boulez's uh, composition, Dialogue de l'Ombre Double, which is on this CD, deals with this idea of spatialization uh, in the score. Um, first of all, for, for context, um, the piece is written for solo clarinet and, um, and a double, which is a recorded uh, clarinet. And each movement alternates between the live clarinet and the pre-recorded clarinet. And the live clarinet is always uh, in the middle of the hall. Uh, and amplified and played through uh, the loudspeakers in the hall, okay? Mm -hmm. um, We're talking about the Boulez, Boulez piece, correct? Yes, and the pre-recorded piece uh, pans over uh, nine uh, speaker channels, which are set up around the audience in a circle. So it's just a circle and around sort of situation. And the live clarinet is processed through uh, an acoustic piano, which is backstage. And the resonance of the piano is then fed back into the hall. So instead of using the reverb of the hall, he's actually using the reverberation of the clarinet playing through the piano, fed back into the PA system. That's so cool. It's pretty radical in a way, you know. And he was really thinking at the time in the early 80s about how to change the audience's perception of where the sound's coming from, uh, how to position the performers in uh, in the midst of the audience. You know, he was considering all these things that are really uh, a culmination of all the what the Fluxus movement was thinking about, what what the modernists were thinking about, what Stockhausen was thinking about, having four symphony orchestras played live. You know, uh, with an audience sandwich in between the orchestras. Um, so that piece is really uh, about that. It's sort of like a Mount Everest of, of the clarinet repertoire as well, because it's technically challenging. It's a it's an 18 minute piece of music, um, and it 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 demands um, uh, every ounce of of knowledge that you can have on the instrument and technical ability pushed to its limit. Um, and that's probably why few people have attempted to record the piece. I think. Um, is that you know, what inspired it, you with your album Aerials to go in and record the clarinet with the piano resonance? Definitely, uh, definitely. Um, I thought that I had, an, you know, when you're playing live, playing with Benoit, for example, I would often put my clarinet bell right into the piano and you would press the sustain pedal. And with his piano preparations, we'd get all kinds of different harmonic clouds. Um, so we were already doing that. And then I thought maybe when I do my solo album, I would like to take that idea and put that in. And then, I, of course, I, I discovered the Boulez, and I thought, well, that, uh, 
you know, it's part of my experience now as a performer uh, and as an improviser. So why not do an album where that is an element of of my uh, solo language, so to speak? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's definitely informed by by um, uh, my work with Benoit and also working on scores like like Boulez. I mean, it's not ex- exclusive to him to use the piano in that context, uh, but um, I've certainly encouraged uh, a number of collaborators and composers to to consider those ideas just to um, uh, because it helps to shape a sort of a harmonic an overtone uh, awareness of what the instrument sounds like. Because when you play the clarinet in the hall, um, you hear the sound of the clarinet, you know. But when you're playing with multiphonics, when you're playing with uh, fast arpeggiated movements and everything like that, there's an in uh, uh, an inward sense of harmony or a built-in sense of, of, of harmonic construct that is proper to the instrument, proper mm-hmm. to the clarinet, that, you know, we're used to hearing the clarinet as a monophonic instrument, but when you start working with, with it with multiphonics and more on a vertical kind of way, um, there's a, it's a very unique uh, uh, spectral language because of the odd partials of the instrument. Um, when you listen to brass concerts, it's always, the overtones, they're always basically a harmonic series, but the clarinet harmonic series, as you, as most of your um, listeners will know, is different. Uh, so I started writing my music and conceive, conceiving of my improvisations much more based on the acoustical properties of the instrument that, rather than playing with the traditional constructs of, of uh, uh, the jazz construct of the harmonic series and all the harmonic extension is usually with a flat nine uh, the, the, the ninth, the thirteenth, etc. Well, on the clarinet, it's different. It, it, it works with odd partials, you know, third, fifth, seventh, ninth odd partials, and and then microtonal qualities. Um, so when you're working with the piano resonances and you're playing your clarinet and you do a multiphonics, the piano will pick up uh, the idiosyncrasies and the spectral components of what the clarinet does. Uh, so it only uh, it doesn't become dissonant. It only emphasizes uh, the properties of the instrument, and that as once I've, I've you know I started thinking and listening really carefully to what it did, uh, it opened up a whole new sort of uh, way of approaching the instrument for me. Um, so Ariel's uh, explores the, it's sort of like my baby step. Uh, into that world, um, so it's a very important document because it's a it's a real paradigm shift in the way that I that I approach instrument basically. Um, we're going to do a complete 180 here. You you, you kind of talked about playing some real serious works like Boulez and improvised solo works, but uh, your versatility also extends to pop music. And I must admit, I feel almost bad bringing this up on a classical music podcast, <laughs> but <laughs> I just have to. I've been a huge fan of Matthew Good for a long time. And uh, those who don't know, he's a Canadian songwriting, uh, I would say one of the best songwriters of our time, but he's mostly well known in Canada. And um, he's no stranger really to using classical instruments. I mean, in 2003, he used the Vancouver Symphony on his album Avalanche quite extensively, actually. But in 2011, uh, he released a new record called Lights of Endangered Species. And you actually were featured uh, playing clarinet on a track on there. How did that 
end up happening? Well, that was a one you what you would call a gig, you know. <laughs> it's it's not to to take away all the romantic aspect of it, but uh, <laughs> I was I, I was aware of his work and and you know and, and I I wasn't uh, involved with the VSO um, uh, performance of this, but I heard uh, some of it on the radio and I thought it was pretty cool and you know and he, he always gets a lot of ink whenever he, he plays in this part of the world. Uh, he's a fine artist, I think, and uh, I don't know what he's up to now, but I never actually got to meet uh, him, uh, unfortunately, because uh, we just um, did a session. I got the call for the session from a guy who does contracting of of various uh, sorts, and they said, we need uh, a wind quintet for this piece, for this singer-songwriter, and I said, yeah, sure, okay, I'll do it, and I get to the studio, and I realized that it's Matthew Good. It's his music. Uh, and the arrangements were done by, um, it's a British producer, I think, that he hired for that project specifically. And this producer, I forget his name. Uh, it's probably on the sleeve, uh, on the liner notes, um, was very, uh, um, uh, uh, very, very, very specific as to what he wanted um, what the sound of the album was going to be like. And he mm -hmm. wanted something that was um, fairly orchestral, but more in a chamber orchestra kind of way. So he did all the brass, all the strings, and all the winds um, sessions separately. So when, when I recorded it, uh, we had a wind quintet, and uh, we played to a track that had only uh, guitar, bass, drums, and his voice, uh, nothing else. Hmm. Um, and uh, it was a bit of a challenge because uh, we recorded at uh, Fluvog Studio in Coquitlam and in the dead of winter. It was a particularly cold year in January uh, in Vancouver. Usually it's pretty balmy here compared to uh, back east or Calgary, uh, but it was a cold one. And the room we were in was freezing cold. It was like, you know, those rock guys, I don't know what they recorded, but they didn't seem to have any problems with it. Yeah. Uh, and of course, the bassoonist and the French horn player, the first thing they said is like, no, I'm not playing. <laughs> you know, And I'm worried. <laughs> and I was worried about my clarinet cracking and everything, you know, and my reeds were warping like crazy. And uh, that was before I discovered Leger. Um, anyway, um, so it was an awful session because we had to do take after takes of all this really, really fine uh, writing that was all in the open fifth and fourth and, and you know, very, very nice open harmonies, uh, but it was hell to play in tune. Mm -hmm. So we had to do a whole bunch of, of takes before we satisfied this guy who didn't understand why we were so out of tune. And he said, well, you know, I've recorded everywhere. It's never been a problem. And I was like, well, dude, you know, like, look at <laughs> it's the freezing look, cold. look at the thermometer, you know, like there yeah. is your problem. Turn get up the heat. heat. Yeah. Get some heaters in there and we'll give you a good take. That's and, so weird. Uh, I, it's funny. I would have expected a different, uh, to be honest, a different story. I would have thought that Matt would have wanted to be there and it would have kind of been a, a more yeah, of a collaborative no, effort, but just no, another gig, was, eh? It was uh, pretty much hands-on, uh, hands-off uh, as far as he was concerned. I mean, you know, in the pop world, uh, when you're doing these big projects, I mean, the reality is, is you need a good producer uh, who will be able to get the kind of sound that will give you airtime. That's mm -hmm. the main thing. Uh, they're con you know, they're, they're concerned about the, the, the clarinetist's uh, health and, uh, and, and um, 
you know, uh, comfort level in the studio is very, very low on the list of priorities. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, you know, what we could have done in a half hour ended up being uh, an afternoon of hard work. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was not a great experience in that way. But then when the CD came out, uh, I, you know, I was surprised, actually. The, I liked the sound of the, of the project. I liked what he did with it. Um, you'd be pretty hard pressed to 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 hear me in there in the mix. It's definitely a blend, uh, yeah. It's a blend of things, and I appreciated that. But I thought, you know, if you're going to use all these resources and call some of the best players in town or in the country to to come and record on your album, um, you probably want to, you know, make full use of that and bring out some of those colors. Yeah, are you, are you familiar with the band Talk Talk? Uh, yeah. Yeah, Talk Talk, their album Laughing Stock um, features a yeah. lot of different clarinets and different instruments. And uh, th- I imagined in my head maybe because, you know, Matthew Good actually, I don't know if you know this, but one of his biggest influences was Talk Talk and Mark Hollis. And oh, yeah, uh, okay. specifically those two albums, Spirit of Eden and Laughing Stock. And uh-huh. on Laughing Stock, those recording sessions have become almost legendary because basically they would just record little snippets of different people expressing themselves musically. And they wouldn't allow any session musician to leave until they felt like they'd expressed themselves in some way. And so, but the recordings that came out of it are just really genuine, yeah. interesting, like yeah. phenomenal Origi- moments. Very in there. original stuff, I imagine. Yeah. yeah and, and even Radiohead, I mean, when they had uh, Jimmy Hastings playing on the album Amnesiac, they even mm-hmm. featured that live. And like Tom York introduced Jimmy Hastings to come nice. out and play the track. And they had this gorgeous kind of New Orleans jazz solo to go with it. So, nice. Yeah, I guess it's just a little disappointing to hear that that, that kind of went that yeah. way. But um, a lot yeah. of pop recordings are made in that way, you know? Yeah, and then others are done the right way. You know, if you like, listen to uh, Sigur Ross. Uh, oh, absolutely. They, They're great. They recorded with the uh, London uh, Sinfonietta. Uh, it's beautiful. You know, it's, it's really well done. You really hear the strings and the brass and everything, and it sounds fantastic. Um, no, I mean, but my experience with this particular session was that it could have been... Uh, done differently, but you have to defer to what the producer wants, and you really don't have a say in the matter of how even they're going to place a microphone on you, you know, and uh, uh, fortunately, I knew uh, the, the the people at Fluvog, and they, they know what they were doing. They did a really good job, you know, mm-hmm. um, but it, it's still fun just to, you know, just to know that your name is attached to uh, um you know, to a successful uh, performer like Matthew, it's, it's, it's not a bad thing. It always reflects well, you know. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. uh, unfortunately, uh, I think classical players in general get a pretty raw deal when it comes to these sessions because they're either part of an orchestra or part of an ensemble, and it's the ensemble name that gets put there, but never the individuals who who uh, bring the music to life, you know. Yeah. And uh, that's... Um, something that I've, uh, as a freelancer, I decided well, whenever I sign a contract to do any of these uh, sessions. Oh, you should get the credit, uh, yeah. I, I want the credit. Just like if you're going to use, a, if you're a photographer, you're going to use one of my photos, well, I'm going to give you credit for it, you know. Um, so that, that's an important thing that we, we need to uh, to address whenever we're working as a freelancer, because it's also our meal ticket. People will see that I recorded Matthew, then maybe another rock band will say, hey, we want some clarinet on this track. Um, they'll call me. 
right? Well, it's funny. I have to admit that when I was in high school, I was like, oh, if Matthew Good ever needs clarinet on a record, I, I dream he would one day use me. But <laughs> I guess he <laughs> I, had I a different phone it. number. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that, Sean. <laughs> it's all good, next, I suppose. Next time he needs a clarinet player and they want to record in January <laughs> in Calgary, I'll, I'll give him your name. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so on the giveaway for today, uh, you're sending me a couple CDs that you're going to slap a signature on there, and one lucky winner will have a chance to win those. Uh, what would you like to say to the person who wins these? Um, take the time to listen. <laughs> Just put, <laughs> don't put them on when you're driving, because you might you might end up in a collision somewhere. <laughs> you know, uh, do it at home safely with a with a with a good system, and uh, and just sit back and take it all in. Um, but you might have to do it on on on, on over several uh, uh, times because I think some of the music is uh, it, I, I think it, it warrants that. Absolutely. And so today we discuss mostly uh, Francois's recording career and sort of his past. In a second episode, we're going to focus almost entirely on extended techniques and uh, some different things you can do with that or where music is going with that. I'm sure we'll have a lengthy conversation about that as well. Um, I'm going to put links to Francois's website and some other places online that are relevant that you can check out in the show notes. Um, Francois, was there anything else you'd like to add to today? I think it sounds good. I look forward to chatting some more. And um, uh, if anybody has any questions, there's a contact uh, sheet on my website. Um, people can write to me and ask me more questions. And... Uh, uh, the website is a living document. It's always evolving. So there's a little blog there, but there's also a lot of things about the clarinet that I'm planning on park there, on parking there. Uh, so it's a work in progress. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm also looking forward to asking about your clarinet DNA project next time, which is... Aha. Uh -huh. ah, yeah. So we will, we'll talk about that. <laughs> okay, cool. Great. Thanks so much for coming on the show today, Francois. Uh, real pleasure, Sean. Thanks for listening to the Clarinet Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about today's episode, please see the show notes for episode 26 at www.clarinet.com. This episode was brought to you by Daddario Woodwinds. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, Daddario is redefining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with technology built from the ground up. By using the world's most innovative techniques to deliver consistently what was once made variable by hand, Daddario ensures excellence right out of the box as standard, not a surprise. So you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from Daddario Woodwinds, visit daddario.com woodwinds.